understand that. Both of them by now? Both of them, yeah. Absolutely. Okay. Well, I hope you feel better soon. <laughs> well, speaking of, I uh, I don't have a picture here because I'm sharing the, the Chrome browser, but I just got a, a giant dog. Oh, you um, ended up okay. Is it a rescue oh, or? Oh, my God. He's a rescue. Yeah. Okay. But uh, he's 100 and. So he clocked in at 113 pounds when we first got him. I think that he was tiptoeing when he got on the scale the last time. He was 103. Um, Did he have a saddle? He might as well. I mean, we couldn't figure out how to walk him. So we actually finally got a slip lead, which is kind of, a, unfortunately, it's kind of like a noose. But it's the reason it's like that is because you can tighten up on him and give him a quick correction okay. without it being really you know terrible. And, and he figured it out. Now he's walking literally finger touch level comfort. I took him on a walk this morning. It was glorious. Sweet guy. His name is Bear because he sounds just like a bear. Oh, that's awesome. Is he, is he young? Uh, about a year and a half. Went to Providence Animal Shelter in Media, Pennsylvania, where we've gotten all of our dogs in the last 15 years. And uh, so he looks at the Boston, and the Boston Bull Terrier, who's tiny, looks at him. They start playing. And originally, he was throwing the Boston around. The Boston figured, I could bite his legs. So it's the funniest thing in the world. This little tiny Boston is getting, oh. Oh, wow. <laughs> Shout out to Providence Animal Shelter. That's awesome. Yeah, it's a great place. Anyway, uh, that was my way of getting the feed synchronized. So hi, everybody. Welcome <laughs> to a Tech Chat Tuesday. Oh, I thought you just talking to you, Ken. Oh. I, I do love talking to you, Sujan. I missed you for the last week. Um, yeah. So anyway, so welcome to 2023. This is the Tech Chat Tuesday, the inaugural one for the year. Uh, I'm Ooh. Ken Rimple. Sujan Kapadia. And we are here to talk tech stuff. First things first, though, um, we always talk about this on the show. Uh, and so if you're new to the show, you have no idea what I'm about to say. But uh, first of all, we've been running this conference called Emerging Technologies for the Enterprise or Philly EDE or Philly Emerging Tech, whatever you want to call it, um, for 17 years now. This is our 17th year. Can you believe that? I, yeah, um, wow. It's almost eight. Wow. That's insane. It is as old as my oldest daughter, Chena. So she's 17. This show's 17. Anyway. Um, this thing is a great conference. Uh, we've been hosting it for years. We curate it ourselves. We have our own committees. We bring in people from the Philadelphia and also national area to help us out on suggestions and, and run it. And uh, we are now going to have our 17th year in 2023. It's April 11th and 12th. Uh, and so right now we've opened the website up, thanks to Becca, our uh, uh, engineer on the show here, and also just fantastic content person for us. Um, so it is the, again, the 11th and 12th of uh, April. It's going to be actually a hybrid situation. We want to go live. So what we're doing is we're, we're kind of towing into live again with a slightly smaller venue just because it's more manageable. Uh, it's the Philadelphia Science Center. Great place. Fantastic Wi-Fi. Um, and we're going to limit the number of tickets that are live just to be, you know, for the size of the venue. So if you want to go and be in person, I would say get on to phillyemergingtech.com. Um, and it'll take you this 2023 to phillyemergingtech.com. If you just use phillyemergingtech.com and you can register. And currently the ticket prices are for early bird 425 for in-person. And we also have an online option for $150. We're going to be streaming the whole conference online. So if you're not able to go in, um, or if you're somewhere in the other part of the country and you want to watch it, go ahead and, you know, just the 150 bucks, you get full access, uh, and we will have the ability to communicate and uh, ask questions and things like that. And uh, also anyone who is, uh, you know, there's this place called Speed Fab down the street from us, which is a racing car tuning place. And we just had a giant Maserati or something fly by. Oh, that was baby bear running through the office. 
<laughs> so anyway, so uh, where was I? Um, oh, so yeah, so if, if you were taking the regular uh, ticket of four, uh, at 450, uh, 425, you will also get the online streaming option. So if you're running late or something, you want to see something, you can do that. So uh, again, fantastic conference. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm bragging because I just love the fact that we do this every year. And so far we've got, uh, it looks like we've got about uh, four, five, six, seven, seven speakers booked already, uh, at least. Um, Avdi Grimm, who is a very well-known engineer, um, he has one called Repls All the Way Up, Practice of Full Circle Development. Um, I'll bet that's closure driven or something. Uh, Jess Mink uh, and Jessica Kerr, uh, both work for, oh my, this is embarrassing. Uh, oh, Honeycomb. Uh, they both work for Honeycomb and they have some talks coming up. Um, Jessica specifically, who has speak, spoken with us a number of times, has fantastic talks uh, and also is one of our uh, members of the committee. Open telemetry brings observability to you. Uh, Richard Sneeman, how to steal from maintainers. That's going to be interesting. We have Tammy McClellan and Vaughn Vernon. Uh, ah, Always Sunny in Legacy Adelphia. I like that one. And then Yehuda Katz. What I love about this conference is the talks are deep. They're all about tech and software development, many times from folks that are actually committing to the open source project or writing the books that are kind of prevalent in that space. Um, and there's no agenda. It's not sales driven. It's not marketing driven. Um, you're not getting any sort of you know sales pitch from anyone. It's really just engineers getting together to learn new tech to mingle with each other, which this year will be easier for the folks that choose to do the in-person option. So, you know, I'm really looking forward to it. Yeah, for sure. Um, Yehuda Katz in particular, um, he's been with us a number of years. He's a, a good friend of ours. And uh, he created starbeam.js, which is a, a relatively recent framework which I, I need to learn more about. He did create Ember.js with another developer, engineer, um, also was a Rust, Ruby on Rails, and jQuery core team member. So he's been in the engineering community a very long time, and he's a really fun uh, speaker to listen to and, and uh, see what he has to present. All of them are excellent. We're still curating a lot of talks. So uh, check back at phillyemergingtech.com frequently to see what's up there. Um, we'll probably have abstracts coming in probably in the February timeframe, I would think, uh, just to take some time for people to get their abstracts together. But uh, you'll see more speakers and you'll see more uh, information on each one. And again, it's at the Philadelphia Science Center uh, in western side of Philadelphia uh, in the university area. So a good location. All right. So that's the first announcement we have. Um, also wanted to point out, um, we always have our blog. And so two articles. Um, one is mine. Uh, I did a look forward kind of on trends uh, for 2023. And so you can read that if you want to get a feel for what's going on here. Um, you know, my ones that I've highlighted are things like the big push currently at AWS for serverless, 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 kind of like developers, developers, developers. Um, that's kind of their mode right now. So I kind of point out uh, the different things that are going on there. Uh, talk about that versus containers, um, some front-end tooling stuff that's going on, the latest innovations in Java. Uh, and so those are mine. I'm sure we'll have more developers periodically putting their things out there on the blog as well. Um, so you can check that out if you're curious what I'm looking at for 2023. Uh, Don Coleman took a bit of a look back on some IoT technology, Internet of Things. Uh, so he's discussing kind of like what Internet of Things is, like how the hardware works, how you communicate with different uh, environments, uh, what it can be used for, um, 
And so uh, that's an interesting little kind of view into what kind of engineering he's been doing at Chariot uh, and teams that he's worked with have been doing with IoT sensors. Uh, and then just check here periodically, chariotsolutions.com. You go to resources blog and there's where that stuff is. All right. Um, and then we also have, oh, I forgot to put the video up. So the next thing is the video, uh, youtube.com slash chariotsolutions. It's just another plug for free video for you. No registration required. Uh, if you go to YouTube Chariot Solutions, uh, you will see a bunch of different playlists. Um, we'll go to playlist here. The most recent show we had was Tech Training for Women, a guided tour of full stack. Uh, and so in that one, oops, sorry. In that one, uh-oh. I'm playing it now. There we go. Uh, there, view the full playlist. So that's a five-session conference uh, that kind of goes through, you know, design principles, some popular front-end frameworks, uh, best practices in modern web development uh, from our own Hannah Pinkos, uh, basics of RESTful APIs and DevOps for developers. That's a recent show that we had that might be interesting to you. We also had all of Philly ETE 2022 all the way back to like 2011, I think. Um, and so here, there's all the conference uh, sessions from that conference to give you a taste of what we do at every one of our ETE conferences. Every single talk, fully live uh, for you to view. Um, and so you can enjoy that and get a feel for the kind of content that we curate there, along with a lot of other things as well. So anyway, check out chariotsolutions.com slash, I'm oh, sorry, youtube.com slash chariotsolutions, and uh, you'll be able to see what we're up to on video. All right, so with all that said, let's go into some of the uh, latest uh, articles here. So we'll start off with uh, Keith Gregory. Now he posted this on blog.katiegregory.com. Sometimes he puts things up there as well. Uh, and he's one of our uh, engineers. He's a, a cloud specialist uh, and deals with a lot of like data engineering and uh, configuration as code and, and, and cloud ops works. Uh, a lot of stuff he focuses on, especially around AWS. So this is using uh, event bridge pipes to route CloudWatch logs events to Kinesis. So let's say that you're um, doing a lot of stuff with CloudWatch, but you want to be able to search it and find things in it uh, at a, in a better searching platform. Put it into something like Kinesis to then be able to, to store it somewhere. Mm -hmm. So one thing you can do is there's a new feature called event bridge pipes. Uh, and so this is a new way to connect messaging services uh, so apparently you need a very small Lambda and let me make this font larger cause it's probably tiny. Uh, you need a very small Lambda and then, uh, what happens is they, CloudWatch will actually, when you hook this up, write messages and each of the messages has a type and data in it. Uh, and then what you could do is you could use, uh, this using event bridge pipes. Um, and I'll just scroll down to the Lambda. And you can see that the Lambda itself to actually do something to it is kind of small. Um, and he has code, a sample on GitHub for this. But uh, he says one thing that you want to look at is like, for example, the payload message type is data message for the one you care about, because that's the actual message that's logged from your application into CloudWatch. So you can throw these things in, because it also sends control messages like, you know, ready to send that kind of stuff uh, to make sure it can write a message. You care about data message. Uh, so bottom line is with this integration, you can get things out of CloudWatch logs into Kinesis and then do whatever, whatever process you want to do with it. Yeah, it can be Kinesis streams, Firehose, you know, eventually mm -hmm. this database where you can do further analytics. 
Yep. And he has somewhere in here, let me find the link. Complete example based on the log advance here. So there you go. So there's a full example uh, of the whole thing. So cool. So it's nice. Yeah, I mean, AWS is making it easier for its own services to talk to each other, which means you can more easily use their services and stay within their ecosystem. Less, yeah, right, and get paid, get them paid. Um, <laughs> but I mean, I, the good thing is it's less glue. It's not like it's getting worse in this situation. Right. It's actually yeah. improving the, the exactly. it's reducing the amount of glue you need, right? All right, cool. So that's it's a good- Interesting how Lambda is becoming the, sort of what I call the configuration thing between all the services now. Like if you need to transform something, massage something, have two things talk to each other, Lambda is becoming that thing to stand in between. Yeah, yeah. Good point. So get good at Lambda, folks, because if you're going to do any of US, you're going to be using it to integrate things together for a fair amount. All right. So while we were kind of on the break from the podcast um, over December, because vacations and everything else and getting busy, um, this blog post showed up from Vicky Boygus. Um, I was hoping so this, that you would talk about this right after that. Yeah. 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 Speaking of, right. Um, I've never read her blog. I know she's Dan Boykus's wife, I believe. Yeah. Very prolific uh, writer. Mm -hmm. Good to know. So vickyboykus.com. Um, I do like this title. Uh, it's called the cloudy layers of modern day programming. <laughs> and what she's, she's realizing uh, more and more is uh, basically that modern software development, especially if you're dealing with things that in the cloud, you spend most of your days moving configuration uh, between two things or three things or five things or whatever, where you're spending time wiring things together and integrating them. And that each integration is different and each type of um, skill is kind of different than the other. So, you know, this, this little quote here uh, from this blog post she references, which is also a good read, is the situation of putting together jigsaw puzzles with hammers, scissors, and tape instead of having finely crafted pieces that are designed to fit together. I realize now that we need to label, it, label this properly. It's managed vendor stuff ops, as a friend calls it. Yeah, I love that. Vendor yeah. ops. Vendor ops. You're hired to tend to the vendor's stuff. And that's what we mostly do these days at least the beginnings of a project, right? You're spending a fair amount of time wiring everything together and making things communicate and you're doing a lot of the coercing of it. Yeah, I mean, I still, there's software. a lot of problem solving going on. There's a lot of, of complexity course. still. It's that where you, where you map your problem solution to now is different because it's like, hey, I'm going to use this, 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 and this, and I got to figure out how they all talk to each other and what magic incantation of configuration do I need to make sure they're all happy. So I feel that, a lot of the article like kind of hits those points of like things are a lot more complex than they used to be. She, she talks about, um, you know, local development is much more difficult. Now you can't just download something and locally run it. You end up having to like connect to something out in the cloud or add yeah. for all the services. So it's very, very difficult to just have a pristine local environment to do things. Um, which I do hope we can find ways to get back to that, that is the biggest gripe I hear from consultants and other people in general is like, well, if I want to um, develop this or test it out, I need an account here. I need an account here. I have to upload this here. I have to wait for this thing to trigger and run. So it's the feedback cycle is a lot longer. And yeah. I think her article, either she or an article she, she points to makes a point about um, not everyone's privileged to be able to spend the money needed to run these workloads in a development testing environment on the cloud. So a lot of people get left out 
of this yeah. purely because they can't afford the pay-as-you-go model. It's very true. Um, and there's another article that's going to relate to this that it kind of comes up with the, the costing issues, right? Um, there's an interesting quote, Donald Knuth, uh, yeah. very, very famous uh, old head programmer. <laughs> um, he said, there's a change I'm really worried about the, the way a lot of programming goes today and isn't any fun because it's just plugging in magic incantations where you got that from. Um, combine someone else's software and start it up uh, down at the bottom. The kick it now is after you've done your boring work, then all of a sudden you get a great image, but the work didn't used to be boring. I, I remember years that went by where we would do things like think about well-crafted software in, okay, they were monoliths, let's say, um, but we were building like things that were well-layered, well-structured software. And we were thinking a lot about like, what's the surface area of this API? How can we reuse things best? How can we, you know, reduce the number of connections between things? Um, because we were writing everything, but this API is a service mechanism of doing things, right? This microservice way of doing things has kind of exploded the amount of work we have to do. And um, that's boring work that we have to do, unfortunately. And I, I mostly agree with that. I mean, I, I think, but then I also think of just like age and like, okay, when I was much, much younger and like there was this just, uh, I guess like, you know, programming was all inspiring. It still is, but there was a yeah. lot of like mystery and magic and like, wow, I just did this thing and I had never done it before. So it was brand new to me and I solved it. Wow, this is so cool. Versus now where we may be still doing a lot of interesting things, but they're problems we've solved before potentially. So that that initial burst of joy or like, hey, wow, I, I've unwrapped this gift for the first time. That is not there anymore. So I wonder how much of his quote is like colored by age versus, because if I take a young programmer now who's growing up with the cloud, I don't think they'd say like, oh, this is boring. Like it's new to them. They probably have the same same type of feelings and emotion we did when we got into programming. So I, I don't agree with that part of it. Yeah, I, I understand where you're, where you're coming from. And you get off my lawn right now, you kids. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I'm, I'm slamming my door. So yeah, I, I totally I totally hear where you're coming from on that. Um, I think it's just interesting to see, like we're, in a, we're always in a pendulum in tech between like, you know, really complex and structurally, you know, uh, structurally difficult to like simplified and smoothed over. And there's a bunch of pendulums like that. So it'll be curious to see as we get further along, whether people yeah. really start figuring I, some of this out. And not to belabor the point, I, I, what I do think is lost is like back in the day when I was in high school, I was doing Pascal or learning basic and yeah. turbo basic editor load, like everything I needed to do, I could do in the Turbo Basic ID. I mean, I could write video games. I could do music stuff. I could yep. build actual office type productivity application. I didn't need anything except the IDE, maybe some code other people wrote. And sometimes you'd have to like um, go to DOS level stuff for, or BIOS level stuff for trigger certain interrupts, things like yep. that, do graphics things or use the mouse, but everything was self-contained. So I never had to context switch, which you have another article about. So I think the context switching these days of now having to download this thing, go to the cloud for this, check this out, run this container set, that internal context switching reduces the joy. That's right. That's right. Speaking of, um, oh, wait, no, let's not go there yet. I actually moved my mouse to the wrong place. Um, no, this is fine. We could do that. Let's talk about context switching. So speaking of, um, you know, this is just someone, uh, Ryan Siemens, and it's from 2019, but it kind of resonated with me. Uh, is that uh, people get spread so thin these days, Again, exactly to your point, where there's so many pieces to have to think about. 
to the point, by the way, that I'm working on a, a training class that I'll probably have some at least seminars. It's internal to begin, um, but at least some seminars and videos uh, around like full stack ECS, full stack container driven uh, application development in the cloud, Elastic Container Service. And the reason I did that was because I wanted to be able to reduce the context switching and have people develop locally. And so uh, looking at this thing, like just between projects you're task switching with and what have you, or even just in the middle of a project switching between technologies, we're having a lot of cost wasted because of context switch time, like getting your brain ready to deal with the next thing you're thinking about. And, you know, I think as, as people who manage a company uh, and run the, the, the side of the company, we have a lot of small tasks we switch between just to keep things floating and keep things going. Um, but as a developer, if you're sitting down trying to solve problems, there are a lot of things that are really time-wasting. Hold on a second here. Oh, I knew it. I knew I would get this. Continue reading. Thank you. Um, so, for example, the ones that he uh, mentions here, you know, obviously mentally getting back into a project or Here's my favorite one. This is my guilt. Uh, too many tabs open your browser yeah, and programs open the desktop. <laughs> or how about this? Um, like too many windows of Chrome tabs open at the same time. <laughs> Notifications is a big one. Like email, text, yeah. mobile, just way too many things going on. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, ping developers for updates or quick, hey, can we chat? They're my favorites. And I do this to people too. And I feel guilty every time. Hey, do you have a minute? And it's like, bing. Oh, crap. Now I forgot what I was working on. Uh, point being, though, if I scroll all the way down to the, the payoff of this, uh, oh, where is it? Darn it. Oh, there was a great image in here. There it is. Uh, is if you have a single task to work on, obviously there's no context switching besides I need a break. I'm going to get up and go to the bathroom and do whatever. Um, the minute you start dealing with two tasks, of course, now you've got a context switch each time that you're switching tasks. It magnifies. And so if you have, let's say, five different projects you flip in between, you could be like completely thrown off for half at least of your day, if not two thirds of your day, just trying to get into gear for what you're too. working on. So I think it behooves us as, as, as engineering uh, leaders to think a lot about the people that we work with, to try to make sure that we're not doing uh, too many things to make them have to switch between too many tasks. Yeah. yeah that's a, I think that's a, the hallmark of a great engineering leader. Absolutely. Just get out of the way, make sure that they get what they need to get things done. Um, and make sure they're not getting fragmented across way too many things because it's it's ultimately hurting productivity and costing the client more if you do it that way um, or taking, you know, more resources to do something it could take less if you yeah. really just thought through it. I also think generally speaking, like this applies to a lot of things in life these days because yeah. we're surrounded by technology mm -hmm. um, with our smartphones and everything. And I think, you know, this is a product of ourselves. This is a product of us wanting things fast we want things from amazon in less than two days now we want even prime one day ship like we just want things immediately on demand all the time we have to know where our kids are 24 hours a day very different than when i was growing up like and i can't imagine not Get knowing where her is now it's yeah. like i need to know every second where she's where she's lo located on earth um mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so i wish we you know i the cat's out of the bag now. I always struggle. And I thought of, uh, thought a lot about this during the holidays and New Year's resolutions, not to go on a tangent. It's like, yeah. how do I go back to kind of the way, a little bit towards the way I was living in the 80s? Is, is, it even, is it even possible now, now that this proverbial cat's out of the bag, to ever go the other way? And I think this article and, and everything, it kind of touches upon, I think it's really difficult. And it's we are the ones that are causing this. We're driving our own selves to distraction, yeah. right? And the distraction is killing our ability to get things done. Yeah. So for sure. So just remember that if you're trying to do five things at once, step back, 
see if it's possible for you to focus for a longer period of time on one thing at a time because multitasking is an illusion. Yeah. And learn how to effectively say no. There's a great book called um, The Power of a Positive No that I urge you to pick up if you have a hard time with this. Power of a Positive No. It's a fantastic book. That's exactly the right thing. It's like, look, I, I would love to do this. I've got these five things to do. You tell me what the priority is because I can't get it all done. Right. And if I do them all at once um, and I need to spend bulks of time on a single task to get something furthered in that task. Oh, and of course, like we talk about this all the time, block your calendar out, you know, block your calendar out for work time so that you don't get interrupted by people and turn on those interruption things and say, look, I'm, I'm doing some deep work right now. Absolutely. You know, isn't that another book, Deep Work? I think it is another yes. pretty good one from what I remember. Yeah, that cool. is good. All right. Now that we solve the world's problems. <laughs> at least in software engineering um let's talk about this illusion i feel like doug henning illusion of development environments in the cloud they're a half-baked solution now this is an interesting blog article and uh minikillis.com minikillis.com i'm sorry i'm ruining your name sir um let's see who are you i'm right yeah, this is where I read the point about the uh, pay-as-you-go thing. So good. I mean, this is such a great, of course, now I lost the article. This is such a great uh, blog post, in my opinion. Um, so a couple things here. Like, if we just look at the takeaways, these are great. Um, yeah, we've had development environments in the cloud for years. I personally, this is me, this is old man Ken speaking again. What I find most development environments in the cloud are kind of toys or infuriating to work with because of things like latency things like the fact that they're down when you need them the fact that like they may be buggy they might not give you enough stuff that you need um so yeah they've been around forever you may have to use them like you might be using a jupyter notebook in the cloud to hack around stuff i guess that's fine um, and of course you can test your lambdas in the cloud and things like that and you, sh- and you play with them sure that's good um but you know look uh the service availability of something in the cloud is never going to match local host, right? Yep. So if you've got a team of developers working in the cloud, and let's say there's seven of them in the whole team, what do you need, right? Well, you're let's say it's an AWS solution, and maybe you're doing some cloud nine thing. You're going to need nine cloud nine instances. So you're going to pay for all nine of those, right? All the time you're using them. What if one of your developers is overseas? Um, you know, US East one's not going to be very fast uh, in terms of latency, for someone typing, you know, somewhere overseas in, you know, some European country or, you know, in, in, you know, Japan or someplace. So, you know, does it make sense to use cloud environments for everything? Quick answer is it doesn't always, you may be stuck with them. You may have to deal with them in certain cases, but, you know, for example, the cloud's unavailable, you don't work, right? That's kind of the stuff. I'm kind of, here's some of the tenets of the article that I really liked. And we mentioned speed, right? Like how fast, how latent, is the response. If you're taking every keystroke because you're virtualizing an operating environment, an operating system, well, that means every keystroke goes across the network. And, you know, for example, I've used AWS workspaces when we were, you know, in the middle of the pandemic, we heavily heavily leveraged AWS workspaces for interviewing for a little while because it was a way of saying, all right, let's just set up a Windows box with, or or a Linux box with like IntelliJ idea or whatever, or Visual Studio Code and let people code connect to a box. And every single time when you had an interview, you would find latency. You would find it that like, oh, it takes forever for me to do this. Or if I right click on the mouse because I'm on a Mac and it's a Windows environment, it won't prop up the menu. 
Can I click for you garbage? You know, so all these things are issues uh, that you'll run into, um, you know, again, the quality of the product. Um, there's things like code sandbox and stack blitz and things like that for like writing sample, you know, Node.js or, uh, like react or angular applications. And like, you could literally develop on this stuff and then share it. Um, and some of those even give you a terminal and a clue. And it's kind of like what cloud nines IDE is an Amazon. It's only as good as the tools they give you and the patched versions they have. So if you run into a bug, you can't patch that IDE. It's built into the browser at that point or built into your virtual machine that you can't modify. So all these things together um, are tough to deal with. So then the question is, if you can't always work in the cloud, can you run it locally? Can I download and run the environment locally? Um, some of these environments say they will do it. Uh, one of the interesting one was uh, I think GitLab somewhere in here uh, or code spaces. It might've been, hold on. Uh, I think it was code spaces. Code spaces, I think it was. So for example, like product quality, like there were um, over a hundred bugs reported per month in Gitpod um, for July, August, September, October, November of 2022. And 30% of the reported bugs were left open. It means they're not giving enough time to like tune the platform and make it work best as compared to you with your own IDE and your own tools. You can patch your own IDE. Now, given you might screw up your IDE, so it re requires you to be good at dealing with tooling, but most developers get pretty good at tooling because they want to be able to develop things. You know, <laughs> they want to be able to run things on their computers. So, you know, if you're developing locally, uh, as it says in here in the article, the product quality you care about your laptop's hardware, your operating system, your terminal, and your editor. But if the whole environment's in the cloud, well, then you're locked in with an, a software as a service provider and you're locked into the services they have and the way you configure them etc. And this is really interesting. As of June 2022, Gitpod had zero people dedicated to QA. In December 2022, there were still no open positions for this role. Wow. Sure. You know, and not to bash Gitpod, but this is the challenge of writing something that's supposed to be universally used across the world uh, or wherever their regions are they support and, and giving people desktop development software. It may not be as good and you have to pay for it. So an interesting article to read, um, if you're looking at development environments, I encourage you to read this article. Um, Mike Nichols uh, is that now I can actually say his name because I knew the name was Mike. <laughs> so anyway, um, it's really good in here. Uh, th there's a lot of good things to think about. Um, the point he's making is um, if you can run development on containers, for example, in fact, there's a thing called dev containers. Uh, it's a movement out there for like building containers with development software built into them. And you can then run them locally or close to you in an edge network. So that's a good thing. Um, run it as locally as possible. If you can run it localhost, great. You may give up some of the features that this, that this environment has, like code sharing, you know, like, like pair programming and things. If you run them in the edge network, you might get that. If you don't, you might not. But, you know, sometimes you just need to sit down and work on code and you're on train, you know, or you're you're at home middle of the night and your internet goes down and you want to work on something and you're stuck. Now that sounds crazy. Why would you do that? Cause you're under deadline. Um, but you know, you want to be able to be able to do that uh, and run locally and also run as close to you as possible. So just an interesting thing to think about. And this is where I've been spending a lot of my time, like thinking about the last four projects I've done where they've all been container driven. 
Um, they've all used relational databases that we could run in RDS in the cloud, and we could run the containers in ECS in the cloud or Kubernetes if you really want to get crazy. Um, and we could do that. And any API calls we could do from the Amazon's, you know, JavaScript API, and you can run them across the network. So, for example, if you're going to do, um, I don't know, if you're going to do like S3 file storage manipulation, you can run that from an app server running on your desktop because it's just a service with an endpoint. Um, you don't have to run some proprietary, well, it's proprietary, but you don't have to run something that you could only run in the cloud at that point. You can just run the SDK client from your client side. So you can still run locally. It's a good way to think about development, in my opinion, because it lets you A, run locally, B, um, be able to run in the cloud to kind of shake it down. Uh, and you're saving cost when you're running most everything locally. In fact, the database can just be a Docker container. Exactly. So anyway, think about that. Very good thing to read through if you're thinking about doing things using, you know, like cloud environments, development environments in the cloud. Just consider that like, you know, if you end up doing implementation completely in the cloud, then you're beholden to the cloud and to the provider and the vendor for everything. But if you can run it locally, you can get stuff done and save money in the process. And also developer productivity, because I find waiting for cloud environments to, to synchronize up and, and deal with things, it, you know, you can run things locally in fractions of a second, fire them up again, get started, change the code, deploy the code, because it's just, it's an application in a container. So there yes. we go. It's very daunting these days. And that's probably the number one complaint. I, just think, I mean, I think complaint's the wrong word. It's the number criticism. one gripe or criticism yet yeah, around just day-to-day -day development these days is you just can't fire up something locally and yeah. or check out one project and just look at that to understand everything you need to understand. That's true. And what I'm talking about specifically is apps we've written for the sole purpose of being containerized, right? In an enterprise, you don't get the choice, right? You you find out that, oh, we're using, you know, Spark on this particular cloud instance, and that's where you've got to do it. So everything I said is contextualized to like writing an app from scratch that we were writing for the sole purposes of, you know, putting something in the cloud ultimately, but that we could develop it locally. If you can, it's a good, in, it's a good way to work. But if you can't, these are some of the reasons and these are some of the things to consider. Which, you know, makes me wonder, like when you're, when you're, starting out a project on the cloud, mm -hmm. you know, how much up, how much initial like skeleton do you put together? So then it's easy to like see, you know, if you have the basic scaffolding up, then hopefully that would reduce that feedback cycle. And then it's easy to see things from end to end and make little tweaks, but it's that initial scaffolding, which could be a lot of the work because there are a yeah. lot of moving parts. So I guess that's where, you know, it pays to have someone really knowledgeable about, services, the architecture, the networking, how to put that scaffolding together so you can focus on the logic. And potentially, you, you really need it, because we're having that debate now, right, at Chariot. We're actually beating up that, like, how do we accelerate uh, that startup process? Exactly. And, um, you know, some of that stuff will rust over time, you know, it's or better things will come along that you want to factor in. And that every one of the four projects I've had has had a take on the last one because we've had better things to work with. Yeah. See, you know, that's, oh, sorry, go ahead. No, no, that's it. Go ahead. That's where I see hopefully the longer term value of like you're seeing AI now and GitHub Copilot and mm -hmm. Chat GPT and these other things. Like, okay, can AI even, I don't want AI to write my fun stuff for me. That would just suck. Mm -hmm. But can AI 
generate the scaffolding and do the configuration and and some of the some of the in the code infrastructure as code stuff so i can focus on the secret sauce that would be cool oh wouldn't that be great and and hopefully they do it in a way that it's not a black box saying turn switch on and everything's ready you're like no right. <laughs> so anyway that's a good read um check that out we'll have oh and the links are all going to be in the show notes for the video so if you go to youtube.com slash solutions you go to the tech chat you'll see this one um obviously you're watching it now otherwise you wouldn't know i'm saying this <laughs> but as you're watching it take a look at the comments uh or, or the uh the description and all the links for all these things will be there <laughs> if a tree fell in the forest would i really write code anyway <laughs> okay let's do a few other short announcements here so vite 4.0 and yes you say vite apparently um so vite is a front-end build tool um a build platform uh, and it came out, uh, I think Evan Yu created it, if I'm correct about this. Evan Yu is the creator of Vue.js. Uh, and it was built uh, originally to support that platform. So when you create a Vue project in Vue 3, I believe, V3 or V2 was the runtime that booted it, did all the compilation, did the deployment into, uh, you know, instance uh, of a Node.js uh, server uh, so you could run it um, in development mode. Uh, Vite 4.0 is out. And so uh, Vite 4.0 um, has some improvements over Vite 3. So for example, one of the problems you have with uh, JavaScript front-end projects is that, you know, it could be 3,000 JavaScript files if you had a whole bunch, let's say it's React or let's say it's Vue, you might have a whole bunch of components and those components might use different libraries and different features and, you know, deal with like HTML files and other things. Um, all those JavaScript files have to be kind of compiled into a file that's smaller to deploy in the web so it's fast to load. So there's a tool out there that does this work called Rollup. Vite runs Rollup behind the scenes to package for production to give you those single files mm -hmm. for like a collection of all your JavaScripts. Mm -hmm. And so the big upgrade of Vite 4 was to go to Rollup 3, um, which just is, they're constantly reducing the size of the JavaScript that ends up getting deployed uh, when you deploy things for production, for example. It also is using a build tool, a compilation tool called SWC. And SWC is a Rust-based compilation tool uh, that builds uh, projects. So this is like does your, your TypeScript transpilation, uh, for example, or does your um, conversion of the latest JavaScript down to a JavaScript that most browsers can uh, work with. So it's using SWC and it's using... Um, Rollup, so SWC for development and compilation and things like that, and Rollup for like compacting it down for production. Those are two of the big changes there. Um, mm -hmm. And it supports a bunch of different frameworks right now. So you can see that like, for example, um, Nuxt, which by the way is like Next.js, that's the view version of Next.js. It's a server rendered uh, view platform, runs on Vite for um, SvelteKit, which is uh, the Svelte framework uh, which is another framework that uh, the, the the people over at um, oh, what's the name of the company uh, anyway the people that that sponsor uh, Next.js um, also purchased uh, or hired the developer that creates Svelte. So Svelte Kit is his development platform based on Svelte that runs with Vite, and it's amazing. I could say that whole thing together and actually make it sound coherent. So anyway, Nuxt runs on it. Uh, Storybook 7 uh, is going to have first-class support um, for Vite. So if you want to build a Storybook server to show all of your 
designs and your 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 uh, CSS uh, in in motion, uh, you can run Storybook from Vite, for example. So it's an interesting development tool. Um, it's also being used. Uh, what was the one thing I used it for recently? Oh, there's a, a good React starter for it too. So there was this tool called Create React app that a lot of people use. That's a, the React development platform. Now Vite supports React. Um, and they've done some really good things with that as well, like really sped up compilation and um, hot deployment when you change things in a, a React application. So anyway, if you're a JavaScript developer and you're looking at starting a new project, check out Vite. Um, you know, if you're starting a new React app or a new Vue app or even Storybook or something else or SvelteKit, check out and see if there's a starter in Vite for that. All right, another JavaScript thing. SWR. Um, so SWR stands for Stale Wall Revalidate. Um, and so SWR is a uh, data fetching library that was created by the developers of Next.js. The idea is that SWR can download things like, like with fetch, basically it uses fetch behind the scenes. And what it could do is get detect if the data is stale and it can reload it automatically for you based on some configuration parameters you set up for the library. So for example, you have a, a React front end that downloads data when it starts up uh, and it shows that data. And then you might move um, you know, to another application, switch back again. The framework can be automatically detecting that the window got focused again, check how old the data it has and then go back and fetch it because you know, it's, it's past its prime of being uh, non-stale data. So it's a good way of caching and updating cache data. And you use it basically like you use fetch. Um, one of the cool things they've done uh, in 2.0 is they have the support for um, mutation detection. And so if you, for example, mutate something, it can automatically trigger the reloading and, and updating of a, a resource. Uh, and so not to get too deep into it, but for example, uh, you might have an application here that uses this use SWR mutation to call API user and to do it when something happens. So you can say, oh, when this button's clicked, trigger this call me happening and pass it the parameter username of John Doe, or maybe it comes from a field, for example. So the idea is an event can trigger a mutation of the data that's been cached. So that's an interesting little feature of SWR too. Um, and then the other thing it does is optimistic user interface stuff. So the idea here is that you have the ability to provide optimistic data before it updates of this is what I think the data is gonna look like, whether it's stuff you'll build a skeleton from or you know, like kind of like the cache last version of data, you can say, here's what it's going to look like before it actually completely gets updated. And then once it's updated, it replaces the optimistic data with the real data. So it's an interesting library. The Next.js team recommends you use it as the client side library for network calls, for API calls. So if you server render, if you think about it, if you, if you server side render a page with its data in it when you load it and it comes down, then you can then say, hey, SWR hooked to that data. And when it becomes stale, fetch it client side. So there's like an interaction between Next.js generating the server generated pages and then SWR keeping the data in sync. When you say data, can you elaborate? Like, do you mean the, the page, a portion of the page hmm. and everything that supports that portion itself or actually just data like hitting an API? 
hitting an API, specifically okay. like hitting an API. So the idea is maybe okay. you have an endpoint that you hit that gets a list of items. Yeah. And then you want to say that this okay. list of items is stale after 15 minutes. It will automatically refetch if you want it to. Gotcha. Or if you switch between tabs and it comes back and says, oh, this has been, this is stale now. It's been overcovered by something, reload it. And now you've got this optimistic, you know, view of the data. And you also have this ability to trigger it based on events. So okay. it's kind of cool. Gotcha. So SWR is an interesting library. If you do a lot of stuff with Fetch, you may want to check it out and see if it might give you some advantages, especially if you're using something like Next.js, or even you can use it with Remix or other things too. Okay. So SWR I can use independently yeah. of others? Okay. It's a separate library. Just NPM install it and you can okay. use it. Yeah. All it's pretty cool. Awesome. Thank you. Mm -hmm. All right. So let's see. All right, I'm going to skip the DR one because I'm I'm out of my depth in the disaster recovery one. <laughs> but uh, Amazon just uh, had a whole bunch of updates, and in fact, we're going to get Keith Gregory on um, in a couple of weeks to talk about all the things that came out of reInvent uh, this year and some other things that have been kind of floating around because there's a lot of releases all the time on the AWS side. Uh, turns out that RDS, which is their hosted database, um, specifically, by the way, this is the one thing that kind of makes me go eh about it is that it's only for MySQL and MariaDB. So I'm like, I, I need to see this in Postgres for me to be happy. But um, if you're a MariaDB or, or a MySQL person uh, and you're using, um, you know, RDS for that, whether you're using serverless with Amazon Aurora or if you're using instances in regular Amazon RDS, you can now use blue-green deployments. So what that does is it sets it up so you have two production environments, a, a, a blue and a green production environment. And you can prep your green production environment while the blue one is active, flip over to it, and it will automatically make that the master, the current one. And then you can prep the green one for the next deployment and switch blue to green. Um, there's a lot of platforms that are doing blue-green deployments these days just to be able to have an, an active and an, an, an updatable, non-active production environment you can swap in and out and then back off of. And so now this is Amazon taking a, t uh, taking a stab at this for RDS, which is interesting. Um, and so imagine you have like, you know, two different environments. One is like your current production and one's your next release. Now you can have a database cluster with both connections, both, you know, URLs endpoints available for deployment to one is active, one is ready to go and just swaps, which one is production. Pretty cool. All right. Now here's one I want to get your take on, um, Mastodon, right? So, Twitter, there's a lot of people that have been looking at leaving Twitter um, just because of all the political climate and painful stuff with Elon Musk and all that. Um, and so the thing is, one of the places they're trying to go is a Twitter rewrite, so to speak, and, and retake called Mastodon. And Mastodon is not so much a single service as it is a platform you can run and federate with other Mastodon instances. So it's like Twitter, but it's a, a decentralized Twitter diffuse in the internet. Um, and you join a particular instance of Mastodon with a URL, uh, and then you can communicate with other Mastodon users, and there's some sort of communication across in Mastodon instances, which I don't quite get. Uh, this uh, Armin Ronacher's Thoughts and Writings blog post, I think is a great one, just kind of picking it apart and saying, is Mastodon really something that we can scale? And what are the issues with scaling Mastodon uh, as a, a replacement? Now, keep in mind, 
you know, we had people uh, try to come over from Twitter to Mastodon crashing Mastodon servers. Um, and so, for example, I forget which the, some of the famous people that did it, but, um, you know, someone like a big name comes over and they bring 13,000 followers over to a server and the server goes, you know, and just dies because it can't handle that kind of load. So the issue really, it, it comes down to a lot of different things. Um, you know, one of the things is it's a Rails app that was written a while ago, and it wasn't necessarily written to scale wildly. Um, and so that's one concern. Uh, another concern is that uh, no one's really figured out, like, what the legal issues are for running your own Mastodon server. What if you run a Mastodon server and people start hosting illegal images? You know, before you're on Twitter, who's legally responsible for dealing with illegal images on Twitter? Twitter is, right? But if you're hosting the server, do you now have a legal liability? Are you going to get in trouble with the law? So you have to think about things like that. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's great to be altruistic and support serving, uh, you know, the greater good, um, like Hot Fuzz, the greater good. But, um, you know, what about the legal ramifications? And what about security? What if someone's trying to hack into it and they get into your server and then he they steal things like, are you responsible for anything there? So that's an issue as well. Um, you know, because it was written in rails and because it uses a protocol, uh, which is called activity pub, apparently, which is a lot, very chatty. Uh, the question is how can you really scale that? So there's a person that's out there trying to do that now. Uh, we're actually talking to her. It's potential for maybe bring her on, uh, for a talk, who knows, but, uh, the service that she has, oh darn, I'm going to have to look it up. Um, but anyway, it's, it's, it's one of these Mastodon servers. And so she hosts this and she's been dealing with it on a rack. So she has a half rack in her house and she has a really fast connection and she's committed to running Mastodon server. So if I scroll down here a little bit, um, one of the issue is it's unpaid labor, right? Do you really have the time? to spend the time making sure things are secure, to spend the time making sure things scale. Do you have the money to add more drives, to add more memory, to add more processing power, to beef up your internet connection? You're not Twitter. So how much can you really scale as a person hosting Mastodon? Right. Yeah. I mean, most people don't want to think about, it's a, it's a non-starter for most people because you don't want to think yeah. about anything. Just want to use it. So this is like a small fraction of developers who either want to go into this because they, they want to learn how to like operate a server that has lots of clients on it um, and they want some practical experience or they're just altruistic and they want to see if they can help out the community. But I think it's, it's a challenge. It's certainly a challenge. Um, this writer had a really good point. Like he uh, had uh, hosted a paste bin for a while, um, but it turns out that uh, his paste bin got hacked and there were illegal content being put up in the paste bin. And he had to shut it down. Um, you know, he says, even today, I still receive emails from users who beg me to take down paste of that software from other domains because people use it to host doxed content. I really try, I, I really a hard time for a few weeks, I think I tried, when I first discovered what my software ended up being used for. So that's just pastebin, right? Now you consider it's an open chat system and that's a real issue. So anyway, it'll be interesting to see what happens long time, uh, long term with this. When I heard it was an old Rails app, I'm like kind of surprised but it sounds like it might be difficult to do much to the existing Rails app without really, like any existing monolith, without really unpacking it and spending a lot of development time on it. 
So we'll have to see where it goes. I, I, I'm wondering if it still survives, you know, when it really gets, if it really gets hit. Oh, Will Wheaton was an example, for example. So Will Wheaton, who used to be uh, Wesley Crusher on uh, Star Trek, the next generation, he was the kid uh, engineer uh, or uh, helmsman or whatever. Uh, he he came over to Mastodon, tried to, and it just outright failed and crashed on him because too many of his followers came over and that was it. So anyway, interesting thing to think about. This sounds like this is like the, this is the You Kids Get Off My Lawn episode of uh, the Chariot Tech cast. <laughs> Welcome to 2023. <laughs> I know. That's why I like, I realized that it was starting to sound like I was complaining too much. No, I figured I'd take the ball and roll with it. <laughs> so I'm like trying to be quiet for a little bit there. No, you know what? So I, I don't know. It's fun to kind of talk about these things and beat them up. I mean, certainly if you look at any software I've written, I'm sure you could poke holes all over it. So we're just having conversations about tech and challenges. But uh, it is interesting to see, like, it would be great if there was an alternative to Twitter. One of the things that he winds up with in his, his recommendation is it would be nice if there was a open source uh, platform that was hosted by a company that was Twitter, uh, a replacement of Twitter yeah. that people would go to. So you could at least you know, have a non-for-profit company operate an API, but it's like, you have to make money to run it. Yeah. So and I guess the harder thing then is, I mean, I, I think there are a lot of companies out there that can build Twitter again, right? In terms of the actual like, yeah. tech and scalability, that stuff, right. you know, it's, can you get people that you follow and are, you are interested in hearing what they have to say, can you get them to move over? Right, right, exactly. And then can you, realistically, if a company is going to replace Twitter, can they really do all the moderation they need to do? Because that is a huge job. Yeah, I don't think, yeah, exactly. You know, so I don't know. Personally, sometimes I think we'd all be better off without Twitter, but because it's it hits that little, well, you know. Uh, we'd all be better off without social media in general. Yeah, yeah. Wait a minute. Wait, no, watch this YouTube video. But no, Wait, you're I'm right. Old, this is my old man speaking again. <laughs> you may get more time back in your life if you're not watching uh, Twitter and things like that. All right, well, well hey. We were, we were turning the TV on uh New Year's Day, and I think it put the news on or something, which we rarely do on TV these days. But anyway, it was on, and they were talking like they had an hour-long segment. I forget the channel and program about the the evils of social media. And my daughter was listening to it too, and I just kept it on because she was listening. I'm like, maybe there's some stuff in here she'll learn by osmosis. Yeah. But it, and I, I think it was in the vein of like you know New Year's resolutions or thing like that. But I mean, they made a very very compelling argument against social media and what it's mm -hmm. doing to society and people. And at the same time, you get to realize this is a news program. Social media is taking eyeballs away from people watching the news. So, you yep. know, in my opinion, their agenda is the internet and social media are destroying our ability to deliver news because no one watches it anymore. So yeah, we're going to say they're bad because we want people to come back to watch our news. It's that second order effect thing, right? Yeah. So like, Every new technology, everyone thinks it's going to completely replace the old, but we're still listening to radio. We're still watching TV. We're doing other things. It's a new media, but it certainly seems like we're spending a lot of time wasting time, even more than before. So like, I know, for example, I didn't watch TV and we're just sitting and playing my guitar because you know what? I can learn something. Yeah. <laughs> Get a hobby, everyone. That's what I'm saying. All right. Well, listen, <laughs> we will uh, we'll be back in about two weeks. Uh, if you have any comments, yeah, we're still on Twitter at TechCast, but also emails at techcastfeedback at chariotsolutions.com. We'd love to hear from you uh, and put comments in the YouTube channel. That'd be great as well. Um, and uh, yeah, so 
that's our first one of 2023 register for philly emerging tech it's coming up it's 450 a ticket right now in the early bird phillyemergingtech.com we'll get you there uh, april 11th and 12th 2023 one of the best shows i go to um i just love our speakers all right thanks a lot i will see you in two weeks take care everyone hope you had a great holiday see you